from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. And with spice bush, you can make tea with the leaves, the twigs, the berries. This week on our show, we learn about spice bush tea and acorn pancakes from an outdoor educator. Chef Arlen Llewellyn shares some garlic lover's soup recipes. A commercial net maker tells her story. And we take a bike ride with River Bailey for some coffee outside. All that and more coming up in the next hour here on Earth Eats, so stay with us. Earth Eats is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Renee Reed has the week off, but we do have a couple of news stories from Harvest Public Media. Fifteen Asian Pacific countries recently signed a massive trade deal that sidelines the United States. The pact is the first to bring China, Japan, and South Korea together as trading partners. As Harvest Public Media's Christina Stella reports, analysts say the deal expands China's ability to buy agricultural commodities from countries besides the U.S. Professor Wendang Zhang at Iowa State University says responding to the regional comprehensive economic partnership probably isn't a high priority for the incoming Biden administration. But pressure could eventually mount for the White House to counteract any narrative that China is becoming the world's trade superpower. This definitely should trigger more discussions and nudges for the future Biden administration to consider rejoining TPP and accelerating the negotiation with Europe. Analysts are partly reading the deal as a message that China is looking to take more of its business elsewhere in the future. There will be a lot more incentive for China to further diversify away from the United States. He says the deal makes it easier for China to buy more dairy from Australia and New Zealand. Christina Stella, Harvest Public Media. While the Thanksgiving holiday looked different in many American households this year, the cost of the Thanksgiving meal may have been a bit lower for some families. Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports. Every year, the Farm Bureau surveys how much it costs to purchase the ingredients for a classic Thanksgiving meal for 10. This year, $46.90, which comes out to less than $5 per person. John Newton is the Bureau's chief economist. He says this is the lowest it's been in a decade, mainly due to a drop in turkey prices. You can have a classic Thanksgiving dinner for uh, less than $5 a person. You know, we're giving thanks this holiday. We should give thanks uh, to the farmers. Newton says farmers faced a lot of challenges this year due to the pandemic. However, the cost of certain menu items did go up, namely breads and stuffing. 
I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. Later on in the show, we have a story from Harvest Public Media on a facial recognition system for cows. Pacific seafood depends on skilled workers, and not just the ones out in the boats. In workshops that dot the Oregon coast, industrial craftspeople make and modify the fishing gear behind our seafood meals. In this piece from Josephine McRobbie and Joe O'Connell, we meet two of these makers who are factoring sustainability into their gear designs. Sarah Skamser makes and modifies commercial fishing nets in Newport, Oregon. Like a midwater net will say start out with a hundred foot mesh and the way it's tapered as a funnel is really the mesh size. She got her start on small fishing boats. I love the fishing. I love being at sea. I did crabbing. I did some trawl work, mostly with salmon fishing. Net skills like sewing and splicing became one more thing to help Sarah land a gig. In the late 70s, early 80s, I was bucking again on a big boat, big money, big boat. And I was a welder. All these boats are steel. I had good sea legs. I proven myself to be strong enough to handle everything. And, you know, a winning personality and you name it, and I just needed this net skill to get on these boats where guys were making a lot of money. And so that's why I was doing the nets. That big money, big boat dream, it hit a dead end. And so I asked one of the owners if I could possibly get in, and these guys just absolutely turned, like, purple and just, uh, I no, <laughs> they didn't take me seriously. I just was left out of the picture because I'm a woman. So Sarah channeled her energy into net making. We've kind of cornered the shrimp net market. And so the bottom line to that is I invoice those people now. Networkers have a special skill set. Maneuvering a needle loaded with twine has to become second nature. You know, you don't, you can't just kind of get it. You have to really get it, and you have to move like lightning. When you're bringing five-inch mesh to eight-inch mesh, you do a thing called a baiting, where you're picking up two meshes of the smaller mesh. And so you do one, skip one, do two, skip one, do one, skip one, do two, skip one. And I'm saying that in my head all the time. Skip one, do two, skip one, do one, skip one, do two, And so you have to have your hands moving really fast to get this to pay. Do one, do two, skip one, do one, skip one, do two, skip one, do one, skip one, do And so you have to have that sing-songy rhythm going. Otherwise, you're not going to, you're a person that net shop will not want. Sarah and her team have earned quite a reputation for their work. I have young fishermen coming to say, you might not remember me, I met you in the 80s. They go, I've always wanted to be able to order one of your nets, and my owner said I can order a net. It just lifts a person up to know that I have touched so many lives with these nets. (laughs) 
About a half hour south on the coastal highway, Leonard Van Curler is also making fishing gear. Some of the tools he uses are similar to Sarah's. Well, you've got a needle right in front of you, and that's what it's called, is a needle. And that's but what he's making is a totally different animal, and a made to catch a totally different animal. The Dungeness crab, one of Oregon's most lucrative catches. This summer it went up to $8 a pound for crab. That's Dungeness. That's to catch really the Dungeness, Leonard needed crab pots, and lots of them. He already had the welding skills he needed to make them himself. So I started making crab pots then in earnest. I started building a couple hundred a year. And he tinkered with the size, design, and materials as the years went on. I wanted to improve the crab pot. Everybody wants to make the best mousetrap, right? In some ways, making a crab pot is simple. Well, I told everybody, rule number one is make sure they can get into it. (laughs) Rule number two is keep them, but I mean, make sure they can get into it. (laughs) But other parts of the process, bending steel, wrapping it with rubber, knitting wire mesh, these things require a practiced hand. It took a while to learn to knit, you know. Um, if you watch a guy for one minute, you know what this initial process is, you know. You learn how to roll your hand when you're knitting. And then after doing it for 40 years, you learn how to make it look good. Crab pot design, it's both form and function. That's the neat thing about this this fishery. It's totally sustainable because of the escape rings we put in the pots. Anything smaller than a four or six and a quarter inch crab doesn't stay in the pot. They're made so that the crab can go in there, walk through the triggers, then the triggers close back down and he can't walk back out again. Unless he's small enough to get through the escape rings. And the escape rings will let him walk right out again if he's small enough. Design also matters to Sarah Scamzer. I redesigned the ye old traditional shrimp net. That's just using, we use knotless netting from Japan that goes through the water easier. At the back of Sarah's shrimp nets is another innovation that she helped perfect. And it basically is a barbecue grill. It looks just like a barbecue grill made out of aluminum at the back of the net at an angle. So it's three quarter inch between the bars of the barbecue grill a big hole at the top. All the fish you could accidentally catch with a shrimp net, this excluder helps keep them out. The shrimp are small, Oregon pink shrimp, and so they go through the grid, and the fish just go swimming right out. And so there's no, virtually no bycatch. As it co-evolves with regulations, new gear like these excluders is making a difference in the local habitat. We found solutions for bycatch reduction, and it's very exciting. The shrimp fishery is deemed MSC certified sustainable first pink shrimp fishery in the world that's going on right now. She gets a kick out of opening minds to more sustainable gear. We built a halibut excluder for cod in Alaska, and we built 17 of them. It was brand new, and a fisherman came in. He's been fishing cod for 35 years, and he was just really not liking it. He's like, there's just holes everywhere. I said, no, there's slots. The cod will stay in. And so he goes up there, and so he told he said, put it on my cod trawl. And they were fishing clean. And um, (laughs) then he saw, and so he saw it right away. 
that that did make a difference. And then he got on the radio and he goes, hey, you guys got a halibut excluder over there? Well, I got two, you're gonna need one, man. This works good. And so he took ownership of it. And the fleet took ownership of it and the fishermen took ownership of it. And then they start competing to fish clean. And that's the secret. This story, produced by Josephine McRobbie and public folklorist Joe O'Connell, features the voices of Oregon-based commercial fishers and seafood entrepreneurs. O'Connell conducted the original research in August 2019 for the Oregon Folklife Network, with support from the National Endowment for the Arts. Shane Gibson is the Director of Environmental Education with Sycamore Land Trust. A few years ago, I met with him and Sean Fisher's fourth grade class at Unionville Elementary, a public school just outside of Bloomington in southern Indiana. This school has developed a curriculum called EARTH. It stands for Environment, Art, Resources, Technology, and Health. The school's approach makes for an easy partnership with Gibson, who focuses on the environment, but also on health. His visits always include extra outdoor time for the kids and often a discussion on the nutritional aspects of edible wild plants. On this day in the fall of 2017, they take a walk past the playground down to their outdoor classroom. They're making spice bush tea together and sampling some pancakes made with acorn flour. On the walk, they'll be looking for wild, edible plants. I see some of you have your clipboards today. And I think that's a good idea, a clipboard or a notebook. I might just start t- talking about different types of plants. And you might just jot the name down of that plant. And then you may have time later to research more details. Anytime you're outside, it's a great time to make observations, and who knows what we might see. I've already seen some really awesome dragonflies at the, at the pond. I've seen, I saw turtles kind of uh, cruising along the edge of the pond. Just a few feet from the door of the building, Gibson stops and gathers the students for a quick lesson. He's just been to Bradford Woods for an adult education session. They were thinking, we got to be at a place like Bradford Woods with all this wild area to find wild edibles. But I want you to know is that just like growing a garden in your backyard, wild edibles are right here, out your back door, at your feet, all around you. What is this right here? Say, say it again. Dandelion. Dandelion greens. Dandelions um, are very nutritious. Every part of the dandelion is edible. The roots, the leaf, the flower. Next stop, under an oak tree. An oak tree is uh, one of the most beneficial trees to all wildlife, from the smallest insect to the deer to the um, to turkeys. I saw a, something recently that said it supports over 900 different species, the oak tree, so really, really important. And it was one of the most important, if maybe not the most important, food for early, um, the early people in Indiana, uh, the first people in Indiana, the American Indians. So something about... Acorns is that um, 
they have a bitterness in them from uh, something called tannin. And tannin, what, how they get rid of that bitterness is to boil the acorns, throw out the water, boil them again, throw out the water, and that gets rid of the tannin. You could roast it, you could grind it, and make acorn flour or acorn meal, because I made acorn pancakes that we're going to try later. I'm so excited for that tea, though. And the pancakes. They arrive at the outdoor classroom, a clearing in the woods on the edge of a pond, with wooden benches arranged amphitheater style. Gibson has set up a makeshift outdoor kitchen equipped with a camp stove and pots of hot water. The kids take their seats on the benches. What we're going to do today with the spice bush is to just put the spice bush in the hot water, let it steep, and then it'll be ready to drink. And with spice bush, you can make tea with the leaves, the twigs, the berries. The red berries, um, the Native Americans, they, there were two distinct flavors of the berry where they would take the skin off, and that was one flavor, and then they would use the hard, harder seed for another flavor. Gibson lights the stove and heats up the water for the tea. The kids line up and snip leaves and branches from the spice bush into the hot water. And we're going to do, try to do small then it's time to taste some spice bush tea that Gibson made ahead of time, along with the acorn pancakes and maple syrup from his own trees. I go around to the fourth graders for an informal survey on the taste. Eh. I think that um, it has a lot of texture in it, but with the maple syrup, it tastes a lot better. It does taste like syrup. It's pretty good. It's like the best thing I've ever tasted. I mean, I ate it, but the the um, the drink's really good. Hmm? I just didn't like I just didn't like the acorn pancake. I didn't either. It's, it's like too dry. I like the tea. I just didn't like the other stuff. I thought it was too dry, like you did. Yeah, the tea's amazing. Yeah, the tea's good. Did the uh, maple syrup make it better? Um, no, not really. But the maple syrup was good. Just the bread wasn't. The tea, it was really good. The tea's not good. Which one? The tea? Yeah. I lo I really love the acorn pancakes. It tastes exactly like real. Like pancakes or waffles, they're just so good. I like it. It tastes like water. It's, it tastes like cold water, but like sugar. Make sure you never miss an episode. Good. Subscribe to our it podcast. It tastes like water, but it's the same sweet, great stories uh, in your podcast it. feed. Just search for Earth Eats wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, please it's leave us really a review. Good. We I love really to like hear it. from you, and it helps other I people find us. I think it's good. Us. Yeah, me too. I didn't really like the pancake that much, though. I liked it with the syrup. It wasn't my favorite without the syrup, but with it, it was good. It had a lemony taste to it. Um, nature gives you a lot of nutrition. I like the tea. I don't think this is pretty amazing, guys. What do we say? Thank you. Shane Gibson is the Director of Environmental Education with Sycamore Land Trust in South Central Indiana. He offers educational programming in area schools on topics such as wild edibles, native plants, and wildlife. 
You can find out more at thesycamorelandtrust.org. After a short break, we'll head into the kitchen of Function Brewing with Chef Arlen Llewellyn for two cozy soup recipes. Stay with us. joining chef Arlen Llewellyn in the kitchen of Function Brewing. Arlen is sharing what she calls a tale of two soups. It's a garlic lover's soup. One version is vegan and the other is made with chicken. We'll be walking through the steps of the two variations somewhat simultaneously. You can zoom in on the part that matters most to you. If you get lost, no worries. We have both versions on our website. Let's get started. In both cases, we need to roast a whole head of garlic we have a complete intact head of garlic and we wrap it up tightly in aluminum foil and we're gonna put that you can either put it on a sheet pan or you can just put it straight on the rack in the oven at 400 degrees and 40 to 50 minutes and the way to tell if it's done is to take tongs and just squeeze it and it will have a, a nice give to it when it's all roasted we get that going in the oven. Another early step that we're gonna do for the vegan version is to make our mushroom broth. So we have a half a cup of dried porcini mushrooms, which smells so amazing. I feel like I could, I know if, if you hate mushrooms, maybe it smells terrible, but for me, it's like the most satisfying savory smell. I thought we'd talk a little bit about my approach to making a recipe vegan. One of the things is to think about specifically how you want the flavors to come across rather than just doing straight substitutions. So somebody might look at the chicken uh, soup recipe, which came first. I've made this um, at a restaurant several times and say, oh, well, you should just substitute vegetable stock for chicken stock. But in my experience, vegetable stock is not always a great substitute. Depending on the context, it can taste very muddied because chicken stock, beef stock, while they have vegetables, those are so in the background. And the stock itself is bringing a very strong, specific meaty flavor. So in this case, I would much prefer a very strong meaty flavor of a mushroom rather than the complex and, as I said, sometimes muddled flavor of a, of a veggie stock. So. We're just gonna make our own mushroom stock, although you can certainly buy mushroom stock concentrate in the soup aisle at the grocery store as well. So I have a half a cup of dried porcini mushrooms. And I'm gonna just add three cups of boiling water to it. And you want this to hang out for at least half an hour. Wouldn't hurt for it to go at least for, for an hour or more. At a minimum, you want the mushrooms to become really plump and the, the water will become a nice brown color. That is the mushroom stage on the meat side uh, we, th at this point we would also get a bone in skin on chicken breast going in the oven uh, roasting at 375 to 400 degrees for depending on the size of the chicken breast and how efficient your oven is you're looking at 30 to 45 minutes approximately so those are the early stages if you were making soup for dinner you could do this in the morning if you wanted or the day before and then just refrigerate these components because this stuff does take a little bit longer but everything else is going to come together much faster we can fast forward in time 
In the case of both soups, we're going to be dicing up um, some Yukon Gold potatoes. And you're just cutting these into pieces that would be appealing to you in a soup. Once we have diced up our potatoes, we're going to put them in a nice big soup pot with our broth. Um, in the case of the chicken soup, we just have chicken broth, so it's pretty straightforward. We'll just put the potatoes in the pot and then pour in three cups of chicken stock. Get the lid on it and bring it up to a boil on medium-high. As soon as you reach a boil, you're going to turn it out to medium-low and let it simmer until the potatoes are just starting to become fork tender. You don't want to overcook them or the potatoes will be really mushy and then they'll sort of fall apart in the soup. The mushroom stock, we have one step first, which is that we need to pull these mushrooms out of the, re of the water that they've been rehydrating in. And we just want to chop them up. So we'll set those aside. Chef Arlen says there's often some grit from the dried mushrooms that settles on the bottom of the bowl, and you don't want that in your soup. So we just want to pour it carefully rather than just dumping it, and the sediment will mostly stay at the bottom, and we'll just have to sacrifice the last couple tablespoons of broth in order not to transfer all that grit. So we'll put a lid on that, and same thing, we're going to bring it up to a boil on medium-high, and then once a boil is reached down to medium low and let it simmer until the potatoes are just starting to become fork tender. So we have our potatoes cooked in stock that have become fork tender. And then to add to those, we're gonna be adding cream cheese, eight ounces of cream cheese. We have a nice vegan cream cheese for the vegan one and a traditional dairy one for the chicken soup. Lots of vegan cream cheese options out there to choose from. My favorite is Kite Hill. It's gonna be bringing a lot of body and richness to the party. We're gonna ladle out approximately a cup's worth of the broth and potatoes into a metal or glass bowl, as well as our roasted garlic cloves. So because we started with a full intact head of garlic, we're gonna to have to squeeze out the cloves now, but that is, I find personally very satisfying. You end up with this really gooey, sticky, very savory garlic mixture that just wants to pop out of the cloves when you apply pressure to it. If you don't have an immersion blender and you have a blender that can handle the heat, you can just ladle this straight into your blender. And then we're gonna add our cream cheese to this mixture. So this is how we're getting some body in the soup because the, these potatoes are gonna blend up with the cream cheese and create a nice rich base which we will stir back into the rest of the soup. I don't know about you, but immersion blenders are like my favorite kitchen appliance. Although the challenge is definitely when you're using a smaller amount like this is to try to make sure you keep the immersion blender immersed because if it gets a little too high most of the brands have holes on the side and you could end up shooting hot liquid up. So you do want to make sure that you have kind of a small bowl you tilt it to the side um, and you stick your immersion blender all the way in. If you're concerned about this at all again you just use a traditional blender. So now that we've blended the cream cheese, potatoes, and the broth, we're just gonna stir that right back into the rest of the soup mixture. And now we have a nice creamy soup that's still brothy as well. And then to this, again, we're working on the vegan version that we have blended with the part of, with the cream cheese and the roasted garlic. And now we've combined it back together. We're going to add two and a half cups of broccoli florets so we're gonna add that to our still warm 
soup that's been blended with the cream cheese and roasted garlic. Uh, as well as the broccoli, we're going to add our rehydrated mushrooms. Uh, we're also gonna chop up some, I have cremini mushrooms here. You could use portobello mushrooms or any wild mushroom you have. Just gonna slice these up into pretty small slices. And that will go in as well. And we want half a head of minced garlic cloves. So I wasn't kidding around when I said this was a garlic lover soup. We want this to be uh, vampire proof and great for your immune systems, especially in cold and flu uh, season. This is not a starter garlic dish. And then we're gonna add a pound of shelled edamame. And these are the green soybeans, which can be found in the frozen food section. Just make sure you get the ones that are removed from the shell. There's no reason to thaw them, just add them as they are. They'll bring texture and some extra protein. And edamame has a nice little snap to it, so. Looks good too. Yeah, there's lots of green poking out from the broccoli and the edamame. Um, again, during cold flu season, that's particularly nice to see some green going on. Allow the soup to simmer until the edamame is heated through and the broccoli is tender. Five to ten minutes. Uh, then you're just going to season to taste with salt and pepper. Uh, we're going to add salt to taste and a generous amount of black pepper to round it out. And now back to the chicken version of this garlic lover's soup. We still need to finish that one. We've removed our lid from our soup pot that has our potatoes and chicken stock simmering in it. Potatoes are nicely fork tender. We're going to turn off the heat for a moment and then we are going to ladle out a cup or two of the potatoes and the broth into a heat proof metal or glass bowl and we will blend it with cream cheese and then the roasted garlic that we squeeze out of the roasted garlic uh, head. And once we've blended that with an immersion blender or in a traditional blender, we'll stir that back into our soup. And to our soup, we will now add uh, two and a half cups of broccoli florets. And we'll put the lid back on it and let it simmer about five to 10 minutes. At that point, we're gonna turn off the heat completely and we're gonna add in all the shredded or chopped chicken meat that we pulled off that chicken carcass earlier. I don't want to add it before this because I don't want the chicken to overcook. It's already fully cooked and hanging out in a simmering broth is just going to dry it out. And then we're going to add salt and pepper to taste. Again, we didn't season earlier because we wanted to taste the whole thing together. And the chicken stock and the cream cheese will have already added some salt. So we're going to taste that and see what else it might need. So there you have it. A garlic lover's soup prepared two ways, one vegan and one chicken. These recipes come from the kitchen of Function Brewing, where Arlen Llewellyn is the chef and her husband, Steve Llewellyn, is the brewer. Check out both of these recipes, as always, at eartheats.org. We gave both of the soups a taste. That is some intense garlic. I think because some of it's fresh, or you know, hasn't been cooked for a really long time, it's really got an intensity. Right, but not that raw garlic bite, I don't think. it's. It is, it's very garlicky, but it um, isn't that sharp. It's just really pronounced. And then in the background, you definitely get some of that roasted garlic caramelization, which brings a sweetness, creaminess from the cream cheese. Well, that was the chicken one I was just trying. I'm gonna try the vegan one now. The vegan one is definitely still very garlicky. But it's also very mushroomy. And just, a, I think it pays homage to that earthy, um, robust flavor of the mushrooms. Um, so they're, it's interesting that they have so many ingredients in common, but they are such different soups. They are both really good. So if it were me, I would do this one, but I would use real cream cheese. So I would make a vegetarian, but not right. a vegan. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. 
That makes sense. Let us know what you would do. And if you try either of these soups, drop us a line. We'd love to hear how it turns out. Email us, eartheats at gmail.com. After a quick break, we'll hear from Harvest Public Media about new technology for managing disease in livestock. And we'll travel down the Monin Trail on two wheels for a unique coffee experience. Stay tuned. This is Earth Eats, I'm Kate Young. To the human eye, each cow in a herd can look nearly identical. But new technology is being developed to identify cattle through facial recognition. Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports how this research may lead to a faster way to track cattle in the event of a disease outbreak. There's nothing super complex about the way Jake Calvert identifies his cows. He uses colored ear tags on his ranch in Norman, Oklahoma, and says this follows what he calls the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Uh, Green is for grade cattle. Pink is for our purebred cows, and that's because all of them exhibit just a little bit more femininity than our grade cattle. Uh, Yellow is the bull. Calvert can name a few of his cows even without tags, like Angie, a retired show heifer. Take the number of tags off, though, and it gets a little tricky. It'd be tough for me to say, oh, well, that's 24, and that's obviously the only red cow in the herd, 48. I'd be able to tell her. Without ear tags, brands, or ear tattoos, a herd of cows looks like, well, just a bunch of cows, but not for a new technology. The the artificial intelligence looked at the pictures for uh, millions of iterations, and and, and effectively taught itself which features of the the bovine head were most characteristic of the species. That's Casey Olson. He's a professor at Kansas State University. He and his team showed an AI a lot of cow pictures. Then they played a game of, have you seen this cow? And and 94% of the time, artificial intelligence got the right answer. The ultimate goal is to develop an app called cattle tracks. Ranchers would snap a picture of the cow, then it'd be sent to a database with location and other information. Joe Hoagland's company is developing that app. He says it could lead to a speedier way to track a cow in the event of a disease outbreak. We could trace it and quarantine it and manage it, much like we're dealing today with the coronavirus. Highly infectious diseases like hoof and mouth disease could shut down the cattle industry. Right now, cows would have to be tracked mostly through paper documents and sales records to figure out how far it has potentially spread. Rosalind Biggs is a beef extension specialist at Oklahoma State University. She says time is of the essence if a disease were to occur. We need to be able to limit it because undoubtedly we will have um, significant interruptions in our supply chain here in the United States. Our export markets will undoubtedly cut us off, um, depending upon the disease. Michael Kelsey is the executive vice president of the Oklahoma Cattlemen's Association. 
He says he's open to new technologies as long as they're not too cumbersome. That would be the key is how easy they are to use in an, in an industry that we can keep the speed of commerce flowing, uh, keep the, uh, the, the transport of livestock, the transition of livestock from from buyer to seller and all those types of things in place. Calver is a small rancher and says he's skeptical of facial recognition, but he says other ranchers may jump on board because it's cheaper than radio frequency ear tags. Producers that are concerned about traceability are gonna jump on the bandwagon. Um, the facial rec recognition software may be the ticket uh, because um, a $9 even a $20 a year subscription to a to a phone app is going to be far cheaper than tagging 500 calves with RFID tags. The U.S. Department of Agriculture says it's aware of research into cattle facial recognition and will continue to evaluate it. But right now, there's no plan to officially use the technology to trace cattle. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. bike were you thinking of? Uh, the Surly Long Haul Trucker. Alright. And you have several bikes for different yeah. applications? Some of them duplicate. Have you ever heard this of coffeeuring? What about coffee outside? My guest this week, River Bailey, is going to fill us in on the trend. In fact, he's taking us along for the ride. We met up at River's place on the north side of Indianapolis. He lives with his wife and daughter in a lovely neighborhood of winding roads, mature trees, and handsome mid-century ranch dwellings. We snake through the neighborhood, cut between two houses to find a trail through a patch of woods. A trail littered with golf ball-sized walnuts, I might add. Tricky to navigate on a bike if you're, well, basically if you're me and you're not used to trail riding in the first place, but I manage. It's a shortcut that lets us avoid some busy roads. We still end up crossing two major roadways before we turn onto the Monon Trail heading south. The Monon is a 27-mile path that follows a former section of the Chicago, Indianapolis, and Louisville Railway. The Rails to Trails path runs from the town of Sheridan in the north, south through Carmel, Broad Ripple, and into downtown Indianapolis. It's smooth sailing once we hit the Monon. And on this November afternoon, the trail is lined with the colors of an Indiana autumn. The air is crisp and we definitely need gloves, but all in all, it's a great day for a ride. After a couple of miles of easy cycling, we cross the White River, then turn off the trail into a quiet park. We stop at a couple of wooden benches arranged to look out over the river. The woods along the bank are flecked in shades of gold and brown. We are here so that River can show me his coffee outside routine. I'm River Bailey, a biking enthusiast and coffee making outside person. 
he pulls a stylish boxy bag from the wire basket attached to the front of his bike. A Walt basket, I later learned. They have a following. I brought three different devices, coffee making devices. And I brought a cup for you and a cup for me. This is one of the things we could use called an AeroPress. Kind of a trendy little coffee making device for a single cup of coffee nowadays. And I think we'll do pour overs. This particular pour over is called a Helix. It just folds flat and then you'll see it expands like so. Oh, that's nice. So it's like the cone for yeah, a cone Melita or something, but it's really compact and lightweight. Yep. It's made of wire and it collapses. This is our stove, which is just a little pocket rocket. Here's our kettle. Just traditionally used for camping, mostly they're titanium for backpacking and stuff. It's a little titanium kettle and cups. You could use anything though, it doesn't have to be titanium. And this little pocket rocket stove is really awesome. It just also collapses as you can see and then expands. And then you just screw it on top of your fuel can canister. The type of fuel for this camping stove is called Isopro. It's a blend of isobutane and propane and it comes in a squat so canister that connects directly to the tiny stove piece. He's got a small kettle full of water and the camp stove is assembled. Then, right. so you don't need a lighter, you got this thing. This okay, so like it a, looks like a little key almost. Yeah, and it's just a, a fire starter. It's just a little... Like a metal and flint kind yeah. of thing. So for coffee outside, just like coffee inside, at home, the coffee is up to you. Bring your favorite roast and grind it just before you leave, or bring a portable hand grinder if you must. So that one was like a Helix, it's a pour over device, and then this is also a pour over device, but the nice thing about this little GSI clip-on, it's got a name, clip-on pour over, is that it does, you don't have to use a filter, it's just built in, you can just rinse it out. Just clips on the side of your cup, like so. You like strong coffee? Yes. Good. Lots of people do this coffee outside thing. It's kind of trendy now, I think, especially on bikes. I think some people call it coffineering, which is a funny name for it. Um, you don't have to, have to do it when you're biking, obviously. I mean, the other day I took a hike with a friend and brought all this stuff in a backpack, and we just made coffee outside for us, and that was nice too. But I like coffee and I like biking, so combine the two, and it's a win for me. For me, I feel like it, it makes almost a destination out yeah. of it, right. out of the ride. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like to do it midway, midway through the ride too, so, so that the coffee kicks in, I guess, instead of just at the beginning or at the end. But this location is really nice. It's just a good place to reflect and meditate and just kind of get away from the city. Even though you're in the middle of the city, it don't really feel like it. It's on the White River. It's in a little park in uh, Broad Ripple. And there's benches and leaves and trees. It's under a weeping willow tree, which is really nice. It's just really picturesque. The river's just, right now, I mean, it's just gently flowing and there's some ripples, little whitewater ripples down to the left. 
So the best way to tell this is done on this kettle is just basically I just watch for the, the condensation and the steam to start coming out of the spout. It doesn't whistle or anything. I think it's kind of starting to steam a little bit out there. Yeah, we'll give it a shot. That's probably hot enough. So this one, this this particular pour over one is the one that doesn't have a paper filter. So it, the coffee runs through faster, which doesn't seem like a good thing, but it still tastes really good. You just want to pour it slowly in a circular motion. I've never been a barista or anything like that, but just from what I've read and seen. It looks hot. Yeah, it's certainly steaming. And these are double-walled uh, titanium cups, so they won't burn your hands either. You can hold them and... Yeah, this might be just enough water, actually. All right. I brought my own half and half because I oh, <laughs> really one of those. Yep, I really gotcha. don't enjoy coffee without it. <laughs> oh yeah, that looks good. Oh yeah, the temperature's great. Isn't it? Yeah, it's really good. I'm usually not a sipper. I did that for the, for the <laughs> microphone. My dad, on the other hand, is a sipper. He sips everything. And just. Alright, cheers. Yeah, that's nice. Decent, huh? Yeah. Coffee is probably my one of my favorite things about camping. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know why I've never really thought to bring coffee out on a hike, you know, coffee making supplies out on a hike. I, I sometimes bring it when we're commuting and traveling. Uh, you know, instead of stopping at a coffee shop or something, I'll just have it in the back of the car and make it. And yeah, I'm always pretty coffee self-sufficient when I travel. Yeah. Like I bring my own Me too. setup. <laughs> oh yeah, this is great. And if I have time, uh, a lot of times I'll stop at a, like a bakery or something and bring along a pastry or something to go with it and just to make the event a little bit more special. Yeah. And there's, there is a group up here in Indianapolis that I think it's Indianapolis Coffee Outside or something, but I've met with them a few times and had coffee uh, outside with the group. So it's, it's organized. I think they do it once a month, all year round. But uh, it's been kind of a solo thing for me. So you spend a lot of time outside. Is it usually biking somewhere? Usually, yeah, not always. We also do a lot of hiking and uh, camping, but if I can combine biking with hiking and camping, uh, then it's it's a win, because uh, I really like enjoy riding my bike. So would you say that some of your interest in in doing coffee outside or even just camping and outdoor stuff is, uh, do you like gear? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say I, you probably noticed it while you asked that question. That I'm definitely a, a gearhead. Uh, I'm always looking at for another piece. I mean, there's three different coffee-making devices right here, and at home we have even more. And I'm always looking for new bags for biking and bikes. You know, you can only ride one at a time, but <laughs> I do like having choices. I follow a lot of people, I think, on Instagram that test gear and do things like that, so I could be fun to get into that yeah that would be dreamy yeah yeah I think so too okay so let's let's go through all of the things that you have to have so water is definitely an essential and coffee and then and a stove you definitely want to have your stove and your fuel sometimes I've gotten out here and forgotten my fuel and some kind of device to light it so whether it's a lighter or this little uh, 
fire starter stick thing. And then a pot to boil the water in. And then you want just something to make your coffee, whether it's a pour over or... These aero presses are really popular. Can't get much more simple than just a simple pour over then. Yeah, pour over is definitely my favorite method at this moment. If you're really hardcore, you know, you bring you bring the whole beans and <laughs> put your beans in here and use this little burr grinder. And, and then the coffee just comes down into here. Yeah, and then if you're me, you would have to bring your little jar of half and half. Yes. <laughs> but the cup is also pretty important. One time I, did, I also forgot my cup and I tried to make a pour over with like a plastic bottle that I found, which is kind of gross, but the bottle seemed pretty clean. So, but it didn't work. It, it, it worked, but it blew over when I was trying to make it. And I was trying to take a picture of, of it while I was making it, but to prove how clever I was being <laughs> and that it, it didn't work out. But I, I confessed in the post that I made that it didn't go as smoothly as it all looks in the photos. Well, that was a very good cup of coffee. And this is definitely the perfect day for it. So there you go, coffee outside. Grab your coffee and your gear before you head out on your next ride or hike. Find a sweet spot and brew yourself a cup. It's especially nice in chilly weather. Enjoy. Little clips for the bag. You just these clips are made just so that the bag won't bounce out. And it's, Right so on. it is made for literally this made for this basket. basket. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Check our website to find River Bailey's checklist for everything you need to make your own coffee outside. EarthEats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Take care. Precious food news each week. Subscribe to the Earth Eats Digest. It's a weekly note packed with food stories and recipes right in your inbox. Go to eartheats.org to sign up. EarthEats team includes Aoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Shane Gibson and everyone at Unionville Elementary, Arlen Llewellyn and everyone at Function Brewing, Joe O'Connell and River Bailey. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. EarthEats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.